Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The FCB Radio Network. Welcome to, what is this, day three? Yeah. I'm losing, I'm losing track of the days. Here uh, at the 2016 Republican National Convention, this is a joint presentation of the Outlaws Radio Show and the Todd Allen Show. This is Darvio the King Pinmaro alongside Todd Allen and Khalid Namar. Jessica Lavish is not here today. She was not feeling well. So, Khalid, what are you expecting from... Uh, the festivities today how have you been enjoying the week so far and uh what else are you looking forward to well when i go outside i'm expecting to see a bunch of communists blocking the intersection <laughs> and throwing blood and urine on people you know so i'm optimistic uh despite of all that um you know basically i'm expecting that we're gonna go to hell tomorrow <laughs> no no that, that brings up a point. We we heard um, some inside information from a friend of mine that it's a possibility that Trump is going to be accepting his, the nomination tomorrow by flying on a helicopter, and there may be fireworks, and he's going to go through the tunnel or whatever, and this is going to be this big production. What are your what are your thoughts on the possibility of a freaking movie show entry? You know, this guy is, um, I'm sorry, if this guy wants to be commander-in-chief, he's got to stop acting like Michael Jackson, you know. <laughs> Next, I'm telling you what he's going to do, he's going to jump over the queue in a motorcycle like Evil Knievel used to do back in the day. With a cape. Yeah, with a cape on. <laughs> and then he's going to parachute down, you know, into the on, into prospect, you know, and and then I mean, this guy's a, you know, what is what is going on? Really, is it is that that serious? Wouldn't it be like, you know, a major joke on us if if he decided he, this whole presidency was a joke and he was filming it for a TV series next year? I wouldn't put it past him. I mean, this guy is. Are you kidding me? A helicopter? I mean, when, you remember Deion Sanders? You know, played in a football game and a baseball game the same day, right. and he flew in a helicopter. This stunt, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm I'm tired. I don't I don't want stunts. You know, <laughs> this is ridiculous. I mean, we got cold pink outside throwing tennis balls around. You, you, uh, my friend Dan Messina and I saw them the other night throwing tennis balls and stuff around at cops. I mean, really? And one lady who was not very attractive with a make out instead of make war uh, sticker on. I mean, really? And I ask her, what did that mean? What, what does that mean? Make out, make, or make out, not war, or something like that. Like, if somebody wants to, like, kill you, you're going to say, hey, don't kill me, just have sex with me first? I mean, this is like, left-wing kooks are left-wing kooks. And now, it is fun to see them, because they're, they're quite nutty, and they add to the atmosphere. It's like going to the, uh, a human zoo. You know, so, but I'm looking forward to seeing more and more people that I kind of admire and respect, you know, thinking folks, adults, you know, that are inside of the, the convention. So um, I'm having a great time in spite of my, my negativity and pessimism. <laughs> Don't be fooled by it. <laughs> I'm actually quite in a good mood, <laughs> even, though, even though I sound like I'm ready to kill myself. But, but, uh, <laughs> I'm just, I don't want this. This has been a great summer, and I want it to continue. I do. I really am having a good time. Absolutely. I, it, it, I believe me, I am. It, does, it doesn't sound like it, but, yes, he is having a good time. 
Uh, Todd, what are your expectations for today and tomorrow as we close this thing out? Well, I expect more of Khalid's stand-up comedy routine. Uh, I think that he's doing an outstanding job. I'll be here all week. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm expecting to see the, the calm after the storm, in a sense. I think that the, the, the whole uh, process has been contentious to this point. And now that the nomination has come and gone, it will be interesting to see uh, how the party responds to that, how the, how the Republicans respond to it. It was kind of interesting because... One of the guests that we're, we're, we're waiting to, to interview, uh, Roland Martin, had, had asked or made the statement that there weren't a lot of blacks here at the RNC. And then when we saw him at the, the barbecue last night, uh, he was surrounded by him. And then uh, he interviewed one of uh, the, the people that we had interviewed. Uh, we we, we kind of trumped him on that, pardon the pun. Uh, he asked her, he said, you know, why don't the black Republicans just be quiet? Well, in one hand, you're saying that there are not any black Republicans here. On the second, and the second hand, now you're telling them that they need to be quiet because they're too vocal. So, I, I would, I would be, I'm looking forward to see what else happens. Um, the calm after the storm, so to speak, and, uh, and it just should be really interesting. You and I talked about it as we were walking around uh, trying to, to decompress uh, <laughs> after today's activities, and, and, and talked about living. That people in D.C. have to, they, they live in a bubble. Being here in Median Row, we're in a bubble. We don't see all the stuff that's going outside to Cleveland because it's hot and we're in air conditioned, uh, <laughs> we're, we're in an air conditioned um, parking deck. It's, it, it's really interesting and, and we see how unreal this whole process really is. And for most Americans who, who don't get a chance to experience this, but yet are taught by black studies professors and, and other sociologists. They talk about how the political process works. Until you're actually here in the trenches, inside the bubble, if you will, you really have no idea that choices and decisions are being made, and you, and, and which will impact you, and uh, you have no say. So, Oh, look who joined us, Miss Lavish. What's going on, superstar? Hey. I'm out of breath, okay? Because I just basically ran here. Woo! Hey, y'all. I'm happy to see you. I know you weren't you weren't feeling well, so I'm glad you joined us. But stay tuned. We're going to be bringing you some interviews and a whole lot more here on the joint edition of The Outlaws and the Todd Allen Show. This is Jessica Lavish with The Outlaws. We know that racism still exists in our country, but what about slavery? Human trafficking, a form of modern-day slavery, is where people profit from the control and exploitation of others by means of force, fraud, and coercion. Tragically, no country, community, or individual is immune from the vast injustice. Human trafficking is driven by demand. Instead of contributing to the problem, we can be part of the solution. If we eliminate the demand, we eliminate human trafficking. For more information, follow hashtag demand no more all right folks we're back here at the ara nc for our listeners in east cleveland uh rnc cleveland 2016 we are with gary byrne who is the number one bestseller on the new york times list and his book is crisis of character gary thank you for being with us thank you so much i'm grateful to be here now, one of the, the, the highlights of my being here at the RNC this week is meeting you and your, your book manager uh, out on the street. We're just walking, and, and just the, I just enjoyed the conversation that we had because here it is that we, are, uh, we don't match the, the progressive uh, narrative that it's lily white, it's practically a clan meeting but here it is that we, we have different cultures different ideologies and we come together on meet on the street and just chop it up yeah yes and actually um that says a lot about you guys because you were so kind to us and uh you actually i think you were giving us directions at first and then uh you said you were in radio and we started talking about the book so it's actually kind of uh, great for me i really appreciate your kindness and giving me the opportunity to uh talk about my book crisis of character Absolutely. So give, uh, give our listeners a little bit of background as to how this book came about. So 
So I'm a former Air Force security policeman who then became a Secret Service Uniform Division officer. And then uh, I finished up my career with the government uh, as a federal air marshal. But for the 12 years that I was in the Secret Service, eight of those years I protected the Clintons. And um, I, I love the job. Uh, I, I deeply respected all the, the uh, history of the Secret Service in, in, in our country. Um, but as time went on, after I had left the Secret Service and transferred to the Air Marshals after 9-11, uh, felt like my, my skills could be used there better. And, um, and when it became clear that Mrs. Clinton was going to be running again in 2016, I became concerned. I want the American people to know who the real Hillary Clinton is. And I, I describe this very well in my book. And the real Hillary Clinton is somebody who's angry. She's She clearly, um, in my experience, has protected them for eight years. It became obvious that she despised law enforcement. She despised the military. Uh, she treated treated the Secret Service very hostily all the time. Um, and uh, these are experiences, these are things that I wanted the people, the American people to know. You know, if she becomes president, okay, the American people have spoken, and I get that. That's our system. But I want to be able to look my kids in the eye and say, <clears throat> I tried to do the right thing. Was there any instance in particular that it was uh, her anger was directed at you, or was it, or was it just the, the the group, or was there any personal experience that you had with her? Yeah, one one uh, Christmas, uh, probably the second Christmas or so that they were in office. Um, I was posted outside my uh, post outside the Oval Office, and um, one of her staff members came up. And this, I forget the girl's name. I talk about her in the book. Um, she was very hostile to and she was one of those people she kind of assumed the person she worked for his personality you know what I mean and uh, so she came up and started berating me because I wouldn't let her bring uh, I think it was like about 40 women that were visiting the, the White House during the Christmas time and they were from Arkansas it was this group of women and Mrs. Clinton wanted them to come over and she was going to talk to them in the Oval Office and then she was going to leave and Mrs. Clinton wanted to leave them in the Oval Office she can't do that and these are rules that are based on law that, uh, that it's national security law. And I told the staffer this, and she berated me and referred to me as an a-hole, and, and uh, you know, she was tired of dealing with the uniform division, and she walked off. Later on, the first lady came down, and she berated me too, this is what we want to do. I explained to her she couldn't, and, you know, again, she referred to us as a bunch of a-holes, and uh, we should have got rid of you guys when we first came in. I just kind of rolled my eyes. I tried to be respectful. Um, and then uh, I found a compromise. Uh, which was to leave these, put these women once they were, she was done talking to them, put them across the hallway in the Roosevelt Room, and uh, and so that was the compromise. And it's just one of the many examples that I cite in my book, Crisis of Character, where you know this bizarre behavior where she acts like a dictator and not you know somebody who wants to be a leader. Um, you know, she she came in as the first lady and assumed this unofficial role as a government executive, and she had no authority, and she you know she treated people terribly and. Um, that was just one of the many examples that, that I talk about in my book, Crisis of Character. So you mean to tell me that Hillary Rodham Clinton has a potty mouth? Yeah, she does. And you know what? I don't. That doesn't bother me. You know what? I use. I call it the Navy, salty Navy language, and we all use it. But you know, if you say, "Man, it's a effing hot day out there," that's fine. But if you, in another case where one of my coworkers was walking down the West Colonnade and he said good morning to her, and she told him to go f himself. I'm sorry, that's not acceptable. This guy has been up all night long protecting you and your family. And what she didn't know, now she knew he was a uniform division officer because he's wearing the uniform. What she didn't know was three or four years before, he was in the U.S. Army. And he had been on a mission that her husband had sent, her, sent him on to Somalia, one of the early missions. Not what we would call Black Hawk Down today, but before that. This guy was there. He was wounded. He was, he was shot. He had won the Purple Heart. Three or four years later, he gets a job with the Secret Service, and the first lady of the president who sent him on that mission tells him to go F himself. I'm sorry. That is unacceptable. Wow. That, 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 that's, that's, that's sad because, uh, as you said, that our, our, our soldiers, uh, our, our, our warriors that are on the front lines protecting our freedoms, they do deserve a lot better treatment than that. Um, now, you were with the Clintons for eight years. Yes, yes eight years. So was Bill Clinton really the first black president? <laughs> well, you know what? I believe that was, uh, was that Maya Angelou that said that? Yeah, so if she said it, who am I to dispute her? So, so we, all, we also know of some of the escapades of, uh, of the president, and I know that you can't talk in, uh, specifically about that, but do you think that that could be part of the reason why she's, she was angry then and she still is angry? Yeah, I get that, but my question would be then, my next question is why do you stay in that? Why does he not improve his behavior or you say enough is enough 
You know, you let yourself become so angry that they have at one time they I, I talk about this in my book, Crisis of Character. They they had an argument so loud that the staff members were had to move away from the bottom floor. You know, they were two floors above them. Um, there was a crashing noise. Uh, after it, the fight was over, it was investigated, and there was a broken vase. The next time I saw the president um, in the uh, in the Oval Office, he had a black mark under his eye. He was trying to conceal a black eye. Now, here's the facts of that. There was a fight. There was a crashing sound. I saw the broken vase in the curator's office, and I talk about this in my book. I saw it in the curator's office the next morning. When he came over to the Oval Office, he had a black mark under his eye. They were trying to conceal with makeup. So... Why do you stay in that bizarre, violent relationship? Isn't she the person that's supposed to be there to protect women? Isn't she the one who says, tells women supposedly not to stay in those relationships and to seek help? And she doesn't do it herself. Well, I mean, how do you divorce the most powerful man in the free world, though? Agreed. Agreed. I I get what you're saying. But um, certainly when you read my book and you do a little bit of research about Mrs. Clinton, and if you start with the email server and you go back to when she was... When you go back to when she was fired um, um, during the, the investigation of President Richard Nixon, the man who hired her actually fired her and called her dishonest, and this guy was a Democrat. Take those two things, that and the email server, and fill, read my book and fill in between. This is not somebody who's fit to lead. Darvio has a question for you. Hey, how you doing today? Um, now, it's it's been, we've heard uh, media reports and, and other books as well that talk about uh, Hillary's short temper. Yeah. Um, is that something that you, I, I know we, we've seen that she can be very rude and, and yeah. obnoxious, but is, is she someone that, that had a short temper? Is she someone that you never really knew which way she was going to come come to you on any given day? That's an excellent description of her behavior. And actually, it's the way, it's the truth, what you just said. And it's like you read my book because that's exactly how I lay it out. You didn't know. Uh, for instance, my coworker says good morning to her and she tells him to go F himself. Um, another time, she became so angry, she hits an agent in the back of the head with a Bible. Um, the, the, uh, the, some of her employees, these are women, three women that worked with her in Arkansas. They were supposedly friends, or at least she, they worked together in Arkansas. One of them worked at the Rose Law Firm. They were so terrified of her that they were afraid to tell her when a mistake was made. I, t- I heard them talking one day. I was had to get some information from them about a tour. And they um, they were they looked very concerned. They were, were distraught. And I said, oh, my God, is something wrong? And they were like, no. Um, one of the ladies had given uh, the, the job of ordering stationery for the White House to an intern, and the girl made a mistake. And so tens of thousands of dollars worth of stationery was useless. They weren't concerned about the the waste of taxpayer dollar. What they were concerned about, who was going to tell Hurley? Because based on their knowledge and their have working for them before, they knew that she was going to go off, get wrapped around the axle, go off the deep end, and was going to demand one of them be fired. And they were terrified of her. And that, you know, if you walked into your doctor's office and you saw your doctor's employees that afraid of your doctor, you would walk. You would never let him treat you. Do not. My thing is to the American people, Find out information about her. Find out the truth any way you can. If you read my book, I appreciate it. And uh, vote your conscience. But, you know, use common sense. She would not let somebody like that treat you if she was a doctor. Right. Okay. And another question that I had is, you know, in the in the interest of fairness, I also uh, often hear sometimes that they can be quite charming when they want to be. Uh, is there any redeeming quality yeah. about any of the Clintons? Yeah, so I tell this story in my book, Crisis of Character, a couple of them. One of them is one time, as a, as a Secret Service member at the White House, I had the, uh, uh, if you knew me back then, I could take my pass, you could meet me out at the gate, you'd give me your names and, and your um, uh, driver's license, you know, your, your social security number, we'd run a check on you, I'd bring you in, and we'd do a tour of the White House, stuff that the public doesn't normally get to see, like in the West Wing. So I'm doing this with my parents and some friends of theirs one time, and as I'm getting ready to leave, I see one of the Secret Service agents on the detail coming up the steps. And he says, hey, what are you doing? I said, oh, you know, I'm doing good. How are you? He says, what are you doing? I said, well, I've got some friends here. He goes, well, we're bringing them back from uh, the old executive office building. Just have them stand there, put their hands on the railing, and uh, so they, he'll say hi to them. I'm like, thank you so much. So I did that. president comes up, and you can see he was exhausted. been a long day. 
he was over there doing public service announcements, you know, taping them. So he sees them, and I step back. I step back into an office so that he doesn't see me. And he comes up. He starts talking to him. He's being so nice and he's charming. And my my mom's friend, her name was Mary. And Mary used to be the lead Republican fundraiser for the state of Virginia. And she introduces herself to Bill Clinton like that. And he goes, "I know who you are, Mary. We're watching you." And my, and he shakes my dad's hand. My dad's like, uh, uh, he couldn't even speak. So as he's talking to them and my friends that were there, they, uh, my parents' friends, they had their granddaughter. And, of course, he's being so nice to her and, you know, talking to her. And, and uh, so I step out and he sees me and he puts two and two together. And he's like, oh, you're with my buddy, you know, from Ridley Park. And, and uh, you know, he starts talking and being so nice. And, they, I mean, he talks for about five minutes to them. And it was very nice, and I greatly appreciate it. And then, you know, we said thank you, and he moved on and went back to the mansion. And and that's something they'll never forget. So, yeah, that was a a really nice time. But I want to point out to the listeners, that was Bill, not Hillary. Right, right. So I have a story about both of them, if you have time. So... So one, this, this is a nice story about Hillary. Yeah. Okay. Well, in, in the in the in the of fairness, right? Yeah. Well, it's funny and it's odd and it's adult humor sort of. So, so here's what happened. Yeah, that's, that's right. So, um, uh, Christmas time. Generally, the the White House puts on a party for a Christmas party. There's many of them, but there's one that's for the Secret Service agents that are on the detail. Now, traditionally, the Uniform Division guys are shunned from this. They're not invited. But because we had a good relationship with the staff members of the Clintons, some of them, uh, or, or a lot of them, and this one particular lady just loved the Uniform Division. So she invited about 25 officers and their, and their wives who worked in the West Wing, who worked in tours. So I got invited. And um, one of the things you get to do is take a picture of the, with the President and the First Lady. Now, it was 9 o'clock at night. These people, the Clintons, had been up since seven, 6 or 7 in the morning. They were exhausted. They'd already taken 300 pictures. My wife and I are in line. He looks over and sees us. He gets this big smile on his face. He's shaking my wife's hand. Very nice, very gracious. We stand next to him. And just before they snap the picture, Bill Clinton reaches back behind us, puts my hand on Hillary's backside, right on her butt. <laughs> and, and when you look at the picture, it's actually part of the pictures in the – is it in the book? No, it's on my website. And my eyes are like, oh, crap. So – they snapped a picture, and I turn around and I thank them, and it was funny. And we're walking, we walk out, we're walking down the hallway, and I go tell my wife, and, and she goes, "That's nothing." The whole time he's rubbing my back, and I'm like, "Well, okay," but you know, but you know, I didn't think anything was wrong with it. It was funny. It was adults, you know, and he was they, were, they had a sense of humor, and it was it was nice. And I do tell that story in my book, Crisis of Character. So, well, let me ask you, given given the fact that this would be considered a, a, a tell-all book, yeah. It's about my life, but yes, when it comes to them, I am. That's right. I am. Has there been any backlash, or have you received any any kind of negative no, negativity from higher ups because of your your book? Sure, the Clinton campaign in themselves has really gone to the mainstream media and put a lot of pressure on them. Uh, and this, these have been stories, you know, that I've seen in the news and stuff, where they're putting pressure on them not to interview me because their fear. They know they know who I am. And they know I'm a good, honest guy. And they know I got there by taking a polygraph. And that what I say is going to be true. And they're afraid of the truth. Now, the mainstream media has had plenty of time to let people come on and berate me and call me a liar. But they don't have the 10 minutes it would take for me to go on there and tell the truth and get my, my uh, story in just like I am with you guys. So um, as far as the Secret Service goes, they've come out and attacked me. I shouldn't say that. The Secret Service hasn't said a word that I know of. The Secret Serv- the retired Secret Service Agents Association, has to come out and attack me. Now, I've actually, I'm in the process of taking legal steps to stop their slander. Um, and that's an ongoing thing. But, they, you know, they've tried to say that I wouldn't have access. And they, they do what the retired Secret Service Agents Association has always done. They bash the uniform division. They, they make us look like we're, you know, we're just there because, you know, the law says we have to be there. We're there because we do the same job that they do. We just do it. The uniform division does it in different fashions. They do it in the metal detectors. They do it in the canine bomb sniffing dogs. They do it in the counter snipers. And they do it by standing thousands of hours a year protecting these people, whether it's the Clintons, the Bushes, whoever. Uh, Mr. Obama, you know. So so how can uh, our listeners get your book and, and, and read your book and do the research? Because, again, one, I'm, I'm an economist economics professor and Darvio and I we, we, we go back and forth we have our arguments about subjective and objectivity all the time when when people read this book and we understand that these are accounts or recollections that you have the question becomes how do you prove it 
Because a lot of times, you know, people can always say what's something that is subjective and how would you know whether or not something is made up or not. Um, so, so how do you address that, that type of an argument? So, so here's how I got where I am today. Um, I took a polygraph test, um, to my honesty. I was a member of the U.S. Air Force where I was a security policeman where I passed a background track that allowed me to secure nuclear weapons. And then I go into the Secret Service. I take the polygraph, as I mentioned before. Um, so here's a lot of the information in my book is actually sworn testimony. My unfortunate claim to fame is that I'm the first Secret Service employee to ever be compelled to testify against a sitting president in a criminal case, and that was the Monica Lewinsky case. I was subpoenaed six times by Judge Starr and eventually ordered to testify by Supreme Court Just Rehnquist. So I had 29 years with the federal government, and I ended up with this information, and I ended up with this happening because of President Bill Clinton's behavior. He could have come forward and been a man and said, yes, the accusations are true, and, and this is what happened. But he didn't. He did what they always do in all these scandals. They lie, they blame other people, and then when there was clear DNA evidence, bad analogy, I'm sorry, but, <laughs> but when there was DNA evidence, they had to come out and change their story. And then they tried to, his, his minions tried to attack my integrity. Listen, <clears throat> I get that people, some people might not want to believe this about their president and the woman that was first lady at the time and the woman that wants, to, uh, wants a promotion after the email scandal to president of the United States. I get they, they might not want to believe it, but it is true. <clears throat> you know, I, I swore, I swore um, that I would uh, protect them, and I did the best I could. Now I'm coming forward and I'm telling the American people what the truth was, the way they behave, that she's not fit to serve. Um, if you, you know, if you read what I, what I have in my book, the truth that I put in my book, and, you know, that's 50% of what I, I, I experienced. I didn't put a lot of it in there because a lot of it reveals too much about the Secret Service procedures, and I'm in enough hot water there. Uh, and a lot of it impugns impugn some people, ha damages them that, you know what, they're not really part of the, the conversation now, so why do that? But um, I, I wrote it in a way that tells the truth exposes what needs to be exposed that, that, I, that I'm comfortable with exposing. I know it's inflammatory, but it is the truth, and it's what I experienced. And one more thing. I was asked this before, and, and I'm going to bring this out now. If somebody said, would I take a polygraph? I'll take a polygraph as soon as Mrs. Clinton does. So no problem there. Interesting. Khalid uh, Namar has just come up. Hey, Khalid. You make it sound like I just wandered off the street somewhere. Anyway, um, and, and I'm not sure if Todd has covered this or not, but, you know, uh, the Clintons are masters at uh, discrediting people. Same thing they've done to just about every one of the accusers. I'm sure you have heard uh, that they've discredited you. Uh, real quickly, what can you say to people who uh, have, may have heard some of their uh, remarks about you, negative remarks? Right. So take, take the, look at the Clintons' history and then look at mine. Air Force Security Policeman, Secret Service Uniform Division Officer that got his job by taking a polygraph and leading a very straight, strict life. A, a U.S. Federal Air Marshal for 13 years. Then you look at the Clintons' history. One scandal to the next, one series of spiraling lies to the next. To la the latest thing is this email scandal, scandal that where the FBI director told us uh, right to our faces that five times that she lied to our faces. Put all that together, and who do you think is more likely to be telling the truth? I think it's the police officer that took the following. Okay. Well, I think uh, our listeners can decide for themselves, but uh, I have my opinions, but uh, we'll save them for another time. Thank you for stopping by, Mr. Byrne, and uh, we will be right back with Todd Allen Show. Real quick before we do that, let everybody know where they can get the book. Yeah. Uh, also, let everybody know how they can contact you, social media, that kind of stuff. Sure. I'm on Facebook at Gary Byrne. Um, you can get the book at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any uh, place where you normally buy your books. Thank All you right. so much. Thank you for joining us. We Thank really you. appreciate it. My name is Rakim, and I'm 16 years old. My name is Jamonte, and I'm 15. My name is Ed, and I'm 14. Why don't you smoke? You can lose one of your lungs, and you can get a hole in your throat. The reason why I don't smoke, I play basketball and football, and I have to get a lot of air in my lungs for me to be able to run up and down the court and up and down the field. I think about what it does. What if I die earlier than I expect, or what if things start to happen that I don't want to happen? A message from FCB Entertainment, the Eyes Have It Media Group, and Tobacco Free Kids. Good afternoon. Uh, this is Khalid Namar with the Todd Allen Show and the joint broadcast of the Outlaws Radio Show. My producer will have my head if I don't say that. 
Uh, I'm with uh, my co-host Todd Allen, and uh, we have a very special guest, uh, a man who served for 32 years with distinction in the uh, U.S. Army, um, United States Air Force, I'm sorry, retired Colonel Rob Manis, who's running for uh, the Senate in the great state of Louisiana, U.S. Senate, and uh, we welcome you to here to Todd Allen Show. How are you, Colonel? Oh, thanks for having me on. I really am grateful and appreciate it and appreciate what y'all do. Absolutely. We want to, uh, before we get started, uh, Todd Allen wants to chime in. Yeah, I I just want to correct you that you never make a mistake of telling a colonel that he's in a a certain uh, unit or uh, or division than he is, you know, to say that the colonel is in the Army when he's in the Air Force, etc. That's, you know, so I'm surprised he hasn't called security. Yeah, to escort you out. <laughs> well, I have, three, I have three sons in the military. I have a sailor in the U.S. Navy, an Army soldier, so I'm okay with that. Uh, and a uh, young enlisted airman. Uh, the airman's over in Europe. Uh, the sailor just got off the USS Eisenhower from fighting ISIS. Uh, and the Army uh, soldier is getting ready to go to Afghanistan for a tour. So, Excellent. So you're retired. Um, and, you know, what made you decide to serve or attempt to serve in the U.S. Senate. What, what, what do you think your calling is? Well, you know, uh, I carried this this book with me my entire Air Force career, and I still carry it with me. It's the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States, and it's these values and the government that's described in here that really has created the United States of America we have today. And, you know, we're the nation that the only nation in history that's lifted so many people out of poverty and rescued so many people from a tr- uh, uh, oppression and tyranny. Uh, and I don't see all the folks in Washington, D.C. that we're sending there have the same focus on that objective to have the strongest, safest, most secure United States for my grandsons and my youngest son, who's 11, uh, and for you guys. Uh, and I want to make sure that when I'm old and they're adults, I can look them in the eye before I leave the earth and say, gentlemen, I did everything I could possibly do, even even beyond my 32 and a half years of military service. Yeah, and it's a good point because I, I think uh, the climate over the last eight years has been uh, America shaming. Uh, we're too big. We're too powerful. Um, we're, we're too wealthy. Uh, you know, that's been the tone coming out of Washington. So I'm not surprised that, uh, you know, you get that sentiment. Um, so when it, what is your uh, basic opinion of our uh, defense department or policy um, are you critical of it or are you sympathetic to what the the generals and the brass may be going through when it comes to their uh, commander-in-chief I'm sorry I didn't hear your initial part of it I was saying what uh, what is your general general feeling of the defense department's uh, policy uh, because I know that uh, they don't always get to uh, have their ideas really carried out. There's a lot of resistance from the top down to commander-in-chief. So are you critical of our policy, or are you really sympathetic to what our uh, generals and colonels are going through uh, dealing with the uh, current uh, mentality of our commander-in-chief? Well, first of all, I'm a constitutionalist, even though I'm a 32-and-a-half-year combat veteran, retired full colonel. I've commanded troops uh, in peace and war at uh, senior level and uh, mid-level, a B-1 bomber squadron and an Air Force wing, the sixth largest one in the Air Force. Uh, So my perspective is a little bit different than your average citizen. Uh, I think that America is weaker than we've ever been in my lifetime. We're not leading in the world. And when that happens, we saw in the late 70s under the Carter administration that when we had weakened ourselves and weren't leading, that that bad things happened. And worse things are happening now than happened in those years. And I was a very young man just entering the Air Force in those days. But I see much worse happening now. And I think that's my perspective. And we've got to get back to a point where we're strong, we're leading, uh, and we don't have to fight because we've been intervening in countries where we really shouldn't have, leaving power vacuums that the Islamic State, ISIS, has been able to go into uh, and grow stronger. And they're, they're, they've declared war on us. Uh, and uh, that you see that the results of that uh, in Orlando and San Bernardino. And I think our officers, our senior leaders in the military, are between a rock and a hard place, really, because they know that we have a very poor policy and strategy. It, it, some say that even privately that we have no strategy. Uh, but they're still in the military, and they're sworn to follow the orders of the commander-in-chief as long as they're constitutional, uh, and uh, they have to do that. So it's up to me and people like me that have that expertise to fight to get into the U.S. Senate uh, so that my expertise can be added to other men who respect the Constitution, like Rand Paul, 
uh, who endorsed me already, by the way. Uh, and I can add the national security and the leadership piece because I have a bona fide record of leadership outside of politics. That's why Donald Trump's being successful. He's a bona fide, successful leader in a different field than me, but he, but he is that outside of politics, and that's why he's winning. That's why I'm winning. And we can't forget Senator Mike Lee, who's also a very strong constitutionalist. Here's here's the three. The three uh, that mentored me in 2014 and have for several years now are Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, and Rand Paul. Absolutely. Colonel, one of the things that is taught, especially at the officer level in the military, is the concept of bearing. And bearing becomes a very important part of leadership. We also know now that much of our civilian leadership they have not had the, the benefit or the experience of, of, of serving the country in the military. In your view, do you think that that is one of the things which our, our current politicians may be lacking is an understanding that uh, bearing is important, especially if you're trying to have a leadership role in the entire world, and how that becomes an important part, not only from being in the military, but also transferring to the, the, the political arena? Yes, absolutely. It shows your character. You practice bearing. I mean, it's a, it's a character-building uh, way of life, really, uh, from what I learned. I was in the Air Force from the time I was 17 until till I retired, so I grew up in it, basically. And uh, uh, that is the key thing to being a leader is having the proper the ability to maintain a proper bearing, and that way you can communicate your message to uh, the folks that you want to lead, uh, what your vision is and what your mission is and what their objectives are to reach that mission and vision. Uh, and we see a lot of weakness in that, uh, unfortunately, in our president of the United States. Uh, good intentions, I'm sure, uh, but with the lack of ability to maintain that character and bearing that's needed without being too emotional so that he can lead us to be one America instead of a divided America. And I think a lot of folks have seen that. I, I'm, I'm from Louisiana, and we just had the, the ambush of our police officers in Baton Rouge. You know, the first few days of protests there, it was all local folks, and the, the pastors and the governor, who's a Democrat, and the pastors in the community and the, the political officials who are mixtures of Republican and Democrats, we all work together down there. It doesn't. We don't really see this, didn't really see this as a race issue as much of a, uh, of a tragedy. Uh, and, uh, you know, the police officers, we had to do the investigation, and it still hasn't been determined what exactly happened yet, so we have to kind of leave that on the table. But, you know, if people have concerns and they want to exercise their First Amendment rights, then so be it. You know, it's the right to speak and air your grievances and peacefully assemble, peacefully assemble. They did that. We did that very successfully. I complimented the governor face-to-face -face personally last Wednesday night uh, uh, and told him I thought he had done a good job. And he doesn't get that from Republicans very often. You know, so but when the outside folks from out of state came in, they started getting getting people arrested, throwing frozen water bottles at the police officers, shooting bottle rockets from top of overpasses on the. And that's just not right because the police officers are out there to keep everybody safe. You know, uh, and if there is a bad guy like what happened in Dallas, they need to be able to identify it very very, very quickly. Uh, and they arrested 150 people the first night the outside folks were there, and only seven of them were from Louisiana. So I'm still very proud of how Louisiana has handled that. Uh, we, we believe we're all Americans, and we want to find solutions to the problems, regardless of where the problem is, if it's a police problem or if it's a crime problem. Uh, we want to we focus on that. And it's just really heartbreaking that this guy from Missouri attacked the Baton Rouge police officers, and we lost those lives. I'm very heartbroken for the families, and we keep them in our prayers. I really appreciate that answer, and I think that was very, very poignant. Um, being in the military, having having been involved in the military, and again, we understand that there's a concept of called bearing. And you, of course, being a combat veteran, you also understand rules of engagement and uh, when it's authorized for excessive for, for use of force, etc. It, it seems that in this uh, in, in in our current environment, that there's really a disconnect between uh, the public and police officers. And in my, my question, it's a statement and a question. It seems that when you have young uh, young people in, in combat situation, 18, 19, 20 years old, they seem to have a better understanding of the rules of engagement and when they can engage the enemy, and once they engage the enemy, that they actually give them quarter after the battle is done. 
there seems to be a disconnect between civil police and military. Do you think that there needs to be some sort of, of, of standard rules of engagement, even with the, with the police and, and, and the populace, maybe to, to be similar to the uh, UCMJ? Oh, absolutely. You know, I was a, a base commander of the sixth largest Air Force base in the world out in New Mexico at the end of my Air Force career, and I was very privileged to get to do that. But, you know, in the air, you know, where deadly force use is authorized, you've seen the signs on federal installations. Uh, uh, the rules of engagement are very clear. Uh, and, and I believe that most police organizations do have very clear rules of engagement. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's really unfortunate because uh, if there's a threat, a perceived threat, the officers have to act to protect the public and themselves. And sometimes they may only have one second to decide. Uh, like in the case of Mr. Sterling, I saw, when I first saw the first video, I was appalled because of what it looked like. It looked very bad for the officers. And then I saw a second uh, you know, a day later, I saw a second view of the same uh, activity, and it made me question, okay, what's going on with Mr. Sterling? You know, what's he got? The guys were called out there for, for a guy with a weapon uh, that was threatening folks, and, and they knew that, obviously. So there was something going on that I couldn't, still couldn't see, and I'm, I'm really interested to see how the uh, investigation comes out because uh, uh, our police forces are very good at, at investigations, and I think the DOJ is down there now, so it will definitely be independent. Uh, uh, but but I do think police organizations, when they see issues like this, they should, at, on their own, uh, take upon a policy review for ro- their rules of engagement on the use of deadly force uh, and make sure, uh, I mean, it's always good to do that. Every time I had an aircraft accident or an incident with one of my law enforcement guys, I, when I was a wing commander, I had 650, 23-year-old men and women and younger, down to 18 or 17, uh, being law enforcement on my base. And, uh, you know, they didn't do everything perfectly. So I always had to do a review and make sure that whatever interactions they had that resulted in harm to someone, that it was properly reviewed and investigated. And we reviewed our policies for our rules of engagement. So I think that's that's not a... That's not a, uh, a thing to ask that, that should be pushed back against. You know what I mean? I agree. And, and I think that the important thing is, and, and again, you, you allude to the being a base commander, when you give a directive to your troops, it's clear and concise, and the communication cannot be questioned because it should be crystal clear. It's not only clear and concise in, in the case of the use of deadly force. We write it down, and then we test them to make sure they have the proper understanding of it before they're ever turned loose with a with a loaded weapon in the field. Uh, and uh, police officers' academies do that, too. Uh, I'm not sure what their guard mount procedures are, you know, what guard mount is when uh, they're coming on duty, but ours were that the, uh, the supervision tested uh, from memory the rules of engagement on the use of deadly force every single time you armed up. Uh, and uh, I did that when I was flying in combat in the B-1, and I, and I armed my pistol up and armed my aircraft up. We, the last thing we did was review the rules of engagement, and before we dropped a weapon on the enemy, we made sure we were following the rules of engagement. Uh, uh, now, the rules of engagement are too restrictive today. That's one of the reasons why I'm running uh, overseas. Uh, but in the case of law enforcement, uh, uh, in peacetime and civilian life, uh, uh, we should have very good, clear, concise, tested rules of engagement. And any young police officer, no matter how experienced they are, should be able to respond appropriately. Because it's a, it's a very, very serious duty and responsibility to protect the public and protect themselves so that they can come back to work the next day. Absolutely. So real quick, well, <clears throat> we want to uh, let you get out of here, but we want to let our, our listeners know, because uh, you do have a, a, a U.S. Senate race coming up, uh, so we want to have people uh, know how they can read your website and find out more about you and uh, go from there. Well, great. My website is robmanis.com. That's R-O-B-M-A-N-E-S-S.com. And we really need everybody's help. I'm the outsider in the race, but I'm not a Donald Trump. I don't have $10 billion, and I have to raise a million and a half dollars in the next six weeks. I really do to keep going. But we can get there. We're second in the polls, and we can have a combat veteran, liberty-minded, constitutionalist that that folks that are 18 years old can understand and, and support and folks that are 65 years old can understand. Okay, real quick, what can, what can they send a check to if they want, if they're so inclined to donate to? Where can people donate to? Where can people donate to? You can donate at robmanus.com. You go to that, there's a donate link that comes up immediately. 
I appreciate you, Colonel. Thank you for joining us, and uh, God, God bless you, and uh, good luck in the election. Hello, folks. You're listening to The Todd Allen Show, joint broadcast with the outlaws here on FCB Radio Network at the RNC Cleveland, having a great time. Um, although there has been some controversy going on, and um, it's interesting to see the process. So today we are here with Casper Stockham. He's running for Congress in the state of Colorado, in Denver in particular. Is that correct? Yes, that's absolutely correct. And uh, he's here all the way from Colorado. How do you like it here in Cleveland so far? It's hot and humid. Well, it's humid. It's not as hot as Colorado, but it's definitely humid. Absolutely. So, so you are enjoying yourself. Did you get any good barbecue last night? I did. I did get some barbecue. Um, I can't. I can't think of the name of the place, but it was it was awesome. Uh, Mabel's barbecue. Mabel's barbecue. Yeah. So that's how we do here in Ohio. <laughs> Appreciate you being here with us today, and uh, uh, let's talk about what's happening. In uh, in Denver, and 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 in your race, um, who who are you running against, and, and, and what is one of the uh, prevailing issues uh, in Denver? Okay, so I'm running against a lady. Her name is Diana Deget. She's been in office for 20 years. She to me is part of the problem now. Now she's running as a Democrat, or she is a Democrat, and uh, she is not helping our community at all. In fact, she hasn't helped our community in a long, long time. She helps special interests. She helps her her interests, but she doesn't do really anything for the community. So um, she needs to go. So the district that you are you're running for, I'm assuming it is is mostly minority African American community. It is not minority African American, but it's definitely Democrat. It's um, um, white millennial Democrats. It's a major makeup. So. We were talking off air, and you were saying that one of the issues that you have is the support of the the, the, the Republican Party in your in your district. Can you speak a little bit about that? Sure, sure. You know the um, NRCC and the, the um, National Republican Party and the State Republican Party have, in my opinion, have not done enough to help candidates. And it's not just me. I mean, a lot of candidates have the same exact problem. And some of these agencies, they are set up to help us. And they're not helping. So, you know, what are they doing with the money? Because it's not coming our way. So I think um, there's a lot they can do. Some of it costs money, some of it doesn't. But they're not doing anything other than saying that they're helping us and not not providing that support. Well, one of the things that we've noticed here is that uh, there have been some some liberal or progressive media outlets that have that have claimed that. Um, the Republican convention is similar to a Klan meeting, if you will, that there are not very many blacks that are here. And I don't know if, 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 if they also count how many black jelly, jelly beans are in the bag of jelly beans. But uh, while we're here, we know that that's not the case. We know that there are many people who are African-American and Hispanic who are, who are here. Uh, what, do, you, do you have the, the, the same types of, uh, ch- of challenges in terms of just numbers of, of minorities or blacks in, in Denver who are registered Republicans. Yeah, well, there are very few registered Republican blacks in in Colorado. Uh, most of the blacks in Colorado are registered Democrat. And coming here, it's kind of refreshing because I took a picture <laughs> in a room. There's like 200 black Republicans in a room. And I showed it to my wife. I said, you would not believe this, <laughs> all these black Republicans. But I get a little frustrated with the agencies, you know, like the CNNs of the world, that talk about um, this being like a Klan rally. Well, you are here at the Klan rally filming the Klan. Won't talk to anybody that can prove you different. Okay, so um, when I try to get an interview with them, they weren't interested. But they'll talk to other blacks that complain about the Republican Party, but they won't talk to the blacks that actually like the Republican Party. And that, and you know, that to me is just uh, um, very hypocritical. How, how long have you been a registered Republican? Yeah, so... Actually, I'm more of a conservative than a Republican. And um, I like the Republican Party because they uh, stand for freedom, liberty, and God. um, And the Democrat Party really doesn't. Uh, So I registered as a Republican to run in this race, but I was unaffiliated before that. Because when somebody sees my skin color, they don't know how I'm going to vote. I don't want them to know anything about how I'm going to vote until they start talking to me and start trying to woo me over to their side. 
right? So, um, but I registered as a Republican to run in this race, and I'm going to be running against this lady and beat her in November. Excellent. Well, one of the things that uh, I, I'm impressed about you, uh, Mr. Stockham, is you're a real person. You're not a politician. You're a genuine person. And so how can our listeners uh, support you and your race out there in Denver? Absolutely. So they can go to Casper for Colorado. It's the word for, F-O-R, Colorado.com. Uh, I'm on Facebook, all the social media sites. They can go to Casper for Colorado, look me up. Like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, you know, all that good stuff. Um, I need your help. I need the support of the community. And it doesn't matter if you're in Colorado or not. We need to come together as a community and start taking our country back. And I believe the black conservatives are going to be the ones that actually go in and win our country back. We really appreciate that, and uh, we will do everything we can here at our network to support you. And thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate it. Thank you. This is Jessica Lavish with The Outlaws. We know that racism still exists in our country, but what about slavery? Human trafficking, a form of modern-day slavery, is where people profit from the control and exploitation of others by means of force, fraud, and coercion. Tragically, no country, community, or individual is immune from the vast injustice. Human trafficking is driven by demand. Instead of contributing to the problem, we can be part of the solution. If we eliminate the demand, we eliminate human trafficking. For more information, follow hashtag Demand no more. All right, we have had a long day. Um, few interviews, but the interviews that we that we did, they went pretty long. So um, I think there was some some really good substantial stuff. And some of those interviews. So uh, we'll start with you, Todd. Give your thoughts on uh, your f- reflections on today and looking forward to tomorrow, the last day. Beautiful day, wonderful day outside. Uh, we did some very good interviews, and I'm looking forward to running north to freedom now. So uh, <laughs> more to come. Khalid, same thing. Yeah, we had a great day. I had a productive day. Made a lot of great contacts, um, some fantastic ones that hopefully will be beneficial going forward. Uh, I'm waiting to go outside and see the kooks uh, on my way home. But other than that, uh, tomorrow should be another productive day as this thing winds down. I really don't want it to end, but uh, I guess all good things must end. All this free stuff we've been getting all week has been fantastic. I'm almost going to vote for Bernie Sanders now. Uh, But, you know, at midnight Friday, we turn back into pumpkins. So I don't know if I could take another week of this. He said he wish it keep going. I'm I'm about beat. I don't know if I could do no more of this one. I might try to go to the DNC though, just to go party up over there and drink up their liquor. Jessica, uh, your reflections on today and your thoughts for tomorrow. My reflections on today is not much. <laughs> I was a little tardy to the party, so uh, I heard we, we got some great interviews, so that's good. And we just, you know, tomorrow I'm excited because it's over. It's, it's over, so hopefully we get to see Stacey Dash, right? Yes. We're still, we're, we're still, Stacey, we're still looking for you. Where you at? Come out of hiding. But um, I'm excited for tomorrow, and I know we're going to have some really good interviews tomorrow, so let's get it on. All right, we are out of here. We will see you tomorrow for the fourth and final day of our special FCB Radio Network coverage of the 2016 Republican National Convention. FCB Radio Network.